Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. All right, good morning. You guys good? All right, let's get after it. Let's get after it. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, I'm glad you do because it's church. <laughs> uh, but no, if you have a Bible, uh, open up to, where should we go? We are going to go uh, Colossians. It's in the New Testament, one of Paul's smaller epistles. We're going to go to Colossians 3. Just camp out there and I'll get you there. All right, so we are in part two of this series called Made to Flourish, and we've uh, been talking about, does God have a vision for what you do most of the week, your work? So whether that be uh, in the corporate life, or you're, you're an entrepreneur, or you office at home, or you mom at home, uh, whatever your calling in this season is, we've been just kind of dialing in on getting a vision for work. Because what's happened over the past hundreds of years, um, this was something that the early church got uh, about uh, being redeemed, but then working for the restoration of all things. And that, that's one of the reasons why we're saved, is so that we can now be re-empowered by the Spirit of the living God to be God's agents on the earth. And last week we talked that throughout history, we've kind of pared down a four-part gospel into a two-part gospel. A four-part gospel would be this, that God created you, with an in, that you were made in His image, made to expand and cultivate the garden to the ends of the earth, but then the fall happened. Sin entered into humanity and creation, and things began to fall apart. Things began to work, became toil, work. There was a curse on the fall with regard to our work. But then, with Christ, this message of redemption, that what was lost in the fall, you can be redeemed back to what was lost. Now, after that, there's the fourth part, which is the believers are supposed to work for the restoration of God's creation. Now, throughout time, it got reduced down to just two, which is the fall and redemption. You're a sinner saved by grace to go to heaven. If that's the message, that two-part message, if that's all that we've kind of, if that was our little diet growing up or our diet recently, you have no story to put your work in because it reduces life down to the spiritual reality of that you're separated by God, Jesus came to make you right with him, and now you're right with him. That's it. So what do we do with the rest of our life? What do we do with our marriages? What do we do with our community? What do we do with our work? And that's why we need to see this restoration of a theology of work within the church that I believe is... we're. It's an opportune time <laughs> for the church to develop a robust theology of work. And so last week we talked about there, there, that we have a primary calling, that everyone on God's great earth has a primary calling, and that is to know God, to know and follow His Son Jesus. That's our primary call. So when you hear the gospel, our primary call on our lives is to be a disciple 
of Jesus. But out of that, out of being a disciple of Jesus, our secondary callings, which is how our first calling manifests itself in the earth. So we've got different, different kind of headings there. Our, we've got family. You've got a call on your family. You have a call to minister to your family, a call to love and reveal who God is in our church community. And then the last part that we're really focusing on is, is vocational calling. Vocational calling. The work of believers possesses a significance which goes far beyond the visible results of the work. The process of doing the work, as much as the results of the work, is significant to God. And this is where we really begin to see work as a, as a potentially productive act of praise. That our work is an act of praise. That when we put our hands to the task that God has placed before us in the day or the people that we get the opportunity to be around, God wants us to worship through our work. Now again, if work is a four-letter word in your, in your uh, dictionary and work is this necessary evil, I would say that this series is a loud call for you to reconsider your view of work. That maybe there's a grander story that you're missing out on with regards to what you do during the week. Your vocational calling is not a specific occupation, but rather an attitude that sees work not as something that I have to do, but something that I get to do. It's a privilege and an honor. We have to wake up to the fact that God made you with a design and a purpose. Like Paul says, that you are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2.10 it says, you've been created in Christ Jesus for what? To do the good things, the good works that God has predestined you to walk in. But you're going to have to own the fact that as a follower of Jesus, you have to get the heart of knowing why you're created. And I see this often. People are just so curious as to like, God, I don't know what God has made me for. I don't know why I'm here. And most people are waiting around for someone to tell them who they are. And because we don't really know who we are, we don't know why we've been made and what the design on our life is, then we're left to our culture dictating to us what it's for. And what the messages I'm getting is work is a necessary evil so you can do the things that you really want to do outside of work. But if a culture's saying that, does that really line up with God and His Word? Discovering your vocational calling is possible, and if you're taking notes, discovering your vocational calling is possible because it's based on giftedness, Interest, passion, and human need. All of which are pretty easy to identify. It just takes time to sit down. What's my giftedness? Where are the talents that God has gifted me in? More than other people. And there's so many varying different gifts. And usually only one or two specific gifts gets elevated, at least in corporate life. But how has God made you? What is your giftedness? And then what is your interests and passions? Are these things that stir you when, you when you see them happening? You're like, how can not everyone get on this? 
You ever been around somebody like that? That's like all they talk about? It's like, oh man, that's, that's a passion of yours. That's a passion of yours. <laughs> Not mine, baby. Gloriousness of God's kingdom, but... It's like we can allow ourselves to really lean into not only our giftedness, our passions, but then human need. I mean, I think some of us, I was praying about saying this, but I think some of us are in the wrong lane with regards to our work because we've never really sat down and looked at how did God make me, what are my interests and the passions that he's given me, and then what is the human need that he's putting my eyes onto? Because there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of needs out there. So let me give you an example. Let's say you feel like you've looked at, okay, your your interests, your passions, the human need, your giftedness. Let's say you're a builder. Man, I feel God's called me to be a builder. Now that builder can have a lot of different jobs to build. Could be an architect, could be construction, could be a designer, could be a craftsman, could be a business consultant, a builder. This is what I do, I build. So no matter what occupation or job that I'm getting, that's what I manifest in that job, I build. I create infrastructure. I see systems and I implement them. Wow. That's a call. How about a teacher? How about a teacher? A teacher, maybe, you know, we always kind of think of the classroom, but, but maybe God's made you to be a teacher to train and equip, to coach and lead. Where is this teaching calling going to manifest at your work? Could be, hey boss, I, I want to... I lead a class, or I want to do this training, or I want to, if you're a teacher, then your vocational call, you are going to find ways to teach where you work. How about a healer or a nurturer? This is a good one. Healer or nurturer is, how about nursing, counseling, medicine, caregiving? Wow, what a call to be a nurturer, to be a healer. These are the kind of things that when we think about vocational calling, it's getting into that meta-narrative picture of your life that it's not just about this one job that you're doing right now, but God, how have you made me and built me to glorify you through my work? And how have you wired me to do that? So a career is based on the opportunities of service, which is presented to a believer, enabling him or her to fulfill their vocational calling. Finding the right occupation at any one time is a matter of God's specific leadership, guidance, and most importantly, provision. (laughs) you got to be provided something. But it's like that God, I am ready to step in. This vocational calling is directly related to our God-given giftings and talents that He's given us. So over time, we develop and hone these to expert-level competencies as we grow up. There was a class that I took a long time ago, and uh, it was Making of a Leader, and this, um, uh, our, the professor, his name was Bobby Clinton, and um, he had studied uh, over thir- uh, 3,000 church leaders from 
church, from church history, from the scriptures, church history, and contemporary leaders. And he saw that there's this path of growth that most people hit, and it's the exact same growth curve. And usually there's some first early tests in someone's life, is there's a faithfulness test, an obedience test. You hear God say, I want you to go do that. And then a lot of times we'll kind of like, well, that's kind of weird, God. But there's certain tests that early on in people's walk with Christ, God puts in front, and that we need to pass those tests, or he'll keep us going around the mountain till you wake up, because he is faithful. He is the author and finisher of your faith coming around the mountain. All right, God, let me learn this lesson this time. Let me learn it. Open my eyes. I don't want to be around here again. I want to keep climbing. I don't know where I was going with that, but praise the Lord. So, but it's developing these gifts to see where in this growth curve, Bobby Clinton said that there's at some point where you reach convergence. And it's like the whole class woke up. All the young 20-somethings like, convergence? Tell me more about that. And that was like where your life experience who God's made you to be, all your, um, you know, all your experiences and all your skill sets and all things, a lot of times will come together for maximum fruitfulness. And so, of course, the first question is, when's that happening, Lord? When's that happening, Bobby? When's that? Is that like next year? I was 23 at the time. Is that like next year? He says, no, on average, most people hit convergence in their late 40s. I'm like, What? What in the world are you talking about? When believers do their jobs in excellence and accountability, they cannot help but have a profound impact on the world around them. Thomas Cahill in his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, tells how Christians in the Middle East, Middle Ages, not the Middle East, wow. <laughs> Very different time frame. Uh, changes the whole story. Thomas Cahill in his book, How the, Irish Saved the Civil- Sal- I- How the Irish Saved Civilization, man, we need Jesus, don't we? <laughs> tell, uh, tell, tells how Christians in the Middle Ages moved out of Ireland and throughout pagan Europe. Now, this is the fruit of a man named St. Patrick that most people get drunk off of on the 17th of March, but St. Patrick brought the gospel to the entire Ireland island and transformed this pagan culture to see them come to know Christ. And this was just a handful of years after. Along the way, they invented and established, as they were going to these, they were being sent out as missionaries now into this pagan Europe. Along the way, they invented and established academies, universities, and hospitals Through these new institutions, these Christians transformed local economies and cared for the unfortunate. Their goal was not to change the pagan culture into the church. I need you to listen to this. Their goal was not to change the pagan culture into the church. Instead, their vocation was inspired by the gospel, and that changed the way they carried out their work. They worked for the flourishing of all mankind rather than strictly for themselves. Wow. So Colossians 3, if you're there, Colossians 3, verse 23, Paul says this, Work willingly at whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people, 
Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and remember that the master you serve is Christ. Wow. Serving God through our work. Imagine an enormous tent city at the edge of the greatest metropolis in the world. The refugees who live there have been forcibly removed from their homeland by an invading army. They have seen their city sacked, their families murdered, and their sacred places of worship destroyed. They are bitter towards their captives and would escape if they could. This is the scene of the Israelites living in exile in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. One day after, one day a letter is brought to the exiles from their homeland. It's from the prophet Jeremiah who was left behind in Jerusalem. The the letter radically challenges and changes the Jewish people and their perception of how they should live in this alien, captive world. Part of his letter reads, Jeremiah 29, verse 4, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. If it prospers, you too will prosper. What a mind shift for these exiles. Imagining that you, you've been taken from your home, most of your family's murdered, your captors are enslaving you, and they're taking the best, arguably making them eunuchs, to serve in the king's house. And everything in them wants to break free from this. Everything in them wants to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the destroyed temple. But here's Jeremiah saying, no, you need to go the opposite direction. Instead of trying to flee, you need to invest. Instead of trying to get out of there by any means possible, it's to have dominion, take dominion in this place. Now this word, also seek the peace and prosperity. That word peace, that we're supposed to be praying over our city, that word peace is shalom. Now shalom is a very packed word that our English word peace doesn't even come close to encapsulating. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully deployed or employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. To pray for the shalom of your city. So in this tent city in Babylon, 
A young man in the crowd heard Jeremiah's letter and believed that it meant a new vocational call on his life. From that moment, he totally committed his life to working for the shalom, the peace and well-being of the great pagan city Babylon. The young man's name was Daniel. He wanted Babylon, Babylonian life shaped by the values of the one true God and not the prevailing pagan uh, values of Babylon. At the same time, he worked for the flourishing of all of Babylon. I encourage you to read his story this week because I believe that his life offers a great commentary as to how we should execute our job in the 21st century. Daniel came alongside, he was found to be one of the wiser of the um, young royals that were taken captive from Jerusalem. And he was brought into the king's court. And his boss became the chief of eunuchs, which by inference, you could kind of say maybe Daniel was castrated in order to be in this position with the king. Wow. So he studies hard, and he not only studies hard, but it says that after their time at school that he was found with three other friends, they were, the, they were found to be the most wisest of all the king's servants. Then the king starts having dreams, and he wants these interpretations of the, his dreams, and it's funny because he has these, the, his, his little court of jesters, that are trying to, they said, tell us your dream and we'll interpret it. He goes, nope, I'm not going to give you that. You're supposed to tell me what dream I had and then interpret it. Um, King, we can't do that. Sorry. We can interpret your dream, but to even, nope. Then Daniel steps up. And through Daniel, God gives him the dream in very specifics and then gives him the interpretation. And the king is blown away. And he develops her special relationship with Daniel for the rest of his reign. And Daniel stands behind not just Nebuchadnezzar, the king that he was there that when, he, when he got there, but subsequently two to three other kings he was an advisor to. Daniel loved the pagan king. Daniel loved him. And I find it, Lord help me articulate this, I find it troubling when Christians have this principled stance on X leader. And we, with our principles and with our righteousness, we can kind of take that leader and bring him down. Saw this with I've saw this in the church in every presidency since I've had, like, been woken up. It's like, no matter who it is, it's like, and the, and the hatred and the anger and the statements that followers of Jesus make, do you think that they would ever have a chance to serve in their administration? No. So how are we believers supposed to come alongside a pagan culture when all they hear from us is judgment? I think we need a re-look at our work and what it's supposed to produce, which is the flourishing 
of the people around us. And Daniel, his heart for the king, it was just, it was as I was reading this, it just, it like, it shot off the page. Daniel's heart for the king. And he says this in Daniel 4, he says, so he has this, he has this, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream and Daniel interprets it and it's basically judgment. God is going to come in judgment against that king, Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel says, I wish that this, the events foreshadowed in this dream, would happen to your enemies and not to you. This is a pagan king. And you'd think, if his heart was not fully right before the Lord, that there would be some part of him would say, Get him, Lord. Get him. Get him! (laughs) But his heart for the king was so rich and so deep that he pleaded, God, I, 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 I wish, king, that this was to happen to another person, but it's happening to you. Through Daniel's life, he was seeding Babylonian culture with the wisdom of God, weaving shalom through his gifts and station in life, And I think for us believers, we have basically two different categories of when we think, how do I be a witness, or how do I be a Christian, or how do I be a disciple of Jesus in my place of work? And usually there's only two options that we have. One is to put our head down and just get to work. Just bust it out. Work in excellence. Just go do your job. Keep your mouth shut. But basically... You're just like everybody else. They're trying to do their best, trying to not to get fired. And then on the other side, so it's either do that or it's to be the Jesus guy. Nobody likes the Jesus guy. It's like Jesus. <laughs> it's like trying to find some every little way to work, you know, Jesus in or like. And then, and then after a while, it's like, man, nobody likes hanging around with Jesus guy. Jesus guy gets, you know, dumped at lunches everybody goes out to lunch how come you guys didn't invite me what's up you know i'd love to talk about jesus with you but it's like that's why that's why i just want to have a lunch where i can eat but (laughs) we could go on about jesus guy for a long time but we so those are our two options and we look at that and we say, nope, and we slide in to this category, and we just do. But I think that Daniel provides us this third way that I think would absolutely transform our way in which we work, which is investing your heart life to those around you. It's not about talking about Jesus all the time, and it's not just about putting your head down and doing your job in excellence, which is you should do that to glorify God, but it is about investing your heart life with the people around you. Daniel had a heart for the king that was one of the ways that he could minister to him because he had his heart, and the king knew that. We try to make this life so complicated. these forms and strategies and all this. Look back in your own story. I want you to pause. Think back at your own story. Nine out of ten times, 
It's because there was one person that you were around that went beyond the normal conversation and engaged with you, that cared for you, that showed up, that loved on you, that gave you when you needed, supported you when you needed, was around, was asking the real life questions because you care. Who was that for you? I'll guarantee you it's somebody that went outside their normal domain and said, hey man, let me take you, not under my wing, but just let's hang out. Let's get involved in each other's heart life. Because especially at work, it's like we're operating on just bare minimum. I'm saving all my, all, all my bandwidth for my work. Where I would say, because we don't have this theology of work, we don't, have never really seen it as a, as a vehicle or a form in which we worship the Lord, that when we turn to this third way to just invest my heart life into people around me, it's amazing the opportunities that begin to emerge, that begin to just come up. I'm just investing my heart life into the people around me, and it's amazing. It's amazing. When you stop pursuing whatever you're pursuing and just dig in to say, I want to I pay attention to the people around me and invest in a way differently than I have, everything will change. That's the road less traveled, I believe, that we, we, we fail to engage because we're scared. I mean, when you think about, I mean, let's just admit it, okay? We're scared. We're scared to get involved in other people's drama because we may have our own drama. We may have, we may have certain things going on, but, I'll, but it's failing to recognize what God has already put inside of you. We're thinking that we want the full package before we can, like, you know, come out on stage. It's like, hey, man, here I am. It's like, when's that going to happen? When is that? It's never going to happen. Are you going to know everything about the human heart? No. Are you going to know how to handle every situation tossed your way? Absolutely not. But that should not hold us back from investing our heart life with those around us. Because we have a community, God, I don't even know what to do. This guy I started reaching out to, man, he's like in desperate need. Whoa, where do you turn to for that? Bing! I mean, it's like, you got community around you that can rally around you to love on and minister to whoever God's put on his sights on your head. And we've got to be able to like see this. It's like, God, man, I get to work today. Woo! This is exciting! So I hope this is giving you some handles as to, you know, how, God, how am I going to work this out? How am I going to see what I spend the bulk of my week on transform to glorify you? And I just wanted to end this message with sharing a parable, one that we've probably heard uh, many times. But uh, before I dig into it, I want us to just say, God, what are you saying to me today? What are you saying to me? What are you highlighting to me? Okay? Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Verse 14, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a large trip, long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. Now, parables are just made-up stories by Jesus that teach something bigger. 
And so Jesus is, is going to create this little scenario, and we're going to learn from it. So uh, he called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Hmm. There's a little uh, income inequality in the kingdom. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Anyway, uh, then he left on his trip. Uh, Verse 16, the servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags also went to work and earned two more, but the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. Now, um, this is a New Living Translation. The word for silver is uh, a talent. And now a talent, um, to our modern uh, day equivalent, a talent would be worth $750,000. So uh, this one that is getting just the one, don't feel so sorry for him, okay? It's $750,000 worth. Anyway, so the servant who had received, oh, after a long time their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account for how they used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more, and said, Master, you have given me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. Your master, the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. I think it was about $2.5 million. So now I, I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's se- celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags does the same thing. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling the small amount. So I'll now give you many more responsibilities. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. So he didn't lose anything. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy Servant, if you knew I had harvested crops I didn't plant or gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least it could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, more will be given. Mm. To those who use well what they are given, more will be given and they will have an abundance, but those who do nothing, even what little they have, will be taken away. So do we passively preserve what God has given us? The gifts, the talents, the passions, the human need that we see. Do we just kind of like take that and, and bury it? And God, you know my heart. God, you know my heart. I want to see an investment on the return, but God, I, I'm scared. So I bury it. Or are you like the two other servants that took what God had given them and began to invest that into the real world to see real world fruitful return? And I think that to us, this is a great parable of what success means in the kingdom of God. It's not the prestige or the position or the power or the money that is associated with our culture's definition of success. It is that we're connected to God and that through God, we are allowing Him to work through us, through the works of our hands, through the works of our mouth, through our heart life into others, to see shalom be made manifest in our city. 
And it's the work of the believers. It's the seeding of the gospel through our lives into our culture that changes our city. So where has God placed you? Where has God placed you? And where and what is he calling you in this next season to to shift, to move, to renew your mind in, God, what could this place look like if you walked in the room? And then whatever image God brings to your mind, you need to see that he is sending you as him in that place. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you, God, for our vocational calling. God, that it's not just about an occupation that we have, but God, it's a mindset that you've given us. That God, when we're engaged in our work, in developing the skills and developing our talents and passions, and as you're working through the the fight, the, the, the working of it out. God, you're there right with us, that the process, God, is as important as the result, Father, because you're the author and finisher of our faith. God, this is a journey. This is not a sprint. But Father, I pray that as we begin to dig into this in a brand new way into our life, God, that you would give us a picture that only comes from you, Lord, not from a man's voice, not from a video, but God, that comes directly from you, God, of how our work environments, whether it be at home or in an office or wherever it may be, God, that you would transform our places of employment and places of work, our homes, to see your name glorified and to see the people within, under those roofs, to have an encounter with you and to come to know Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org. We'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.